Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. that you are here this morning. Can you believe that next week we're going to be celebrating Christmas? Can you believe that? Yeah. Somebody's excited over here. Nobody else likes Christmas? A bunch of Scrooges here? Come on, y'all. All right. There you go. Thank you very much. Next week we're beginning our, between now and the next time that we connect with one another, there's going to be Thanksgiving we're going to celebrate with one another, and uh, then also it's going to be time to celebrate Christmas. And I was telling the first service, uh, we're going to be doing a Christmas series this year that's really going to be kind of traditional in the sense that we're going to start in Luke 1-1, and we're going to walk right through the Christmas story up until Christmas Eve service. And I was sharing, what I was sharing with the first service was that one year, uh, one of my elders came to me and said, do you realize that every time we have a holiday, you preach about a prostitute? <laughs> I was like, no, I did not know that. And uh, last year, we took the genealogy of Matthew, and we kind of did some of the Old Testament stories leading up to the Christmas story. And uh, this year, what we're going to do is going to be more traditional. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, for those of you who want to start reading ahead. And we're going to start doing that series uh, next week. And so we invite you to be a part of that. And if you want to invite folks to be a part of that, it's called the gift of God. And obviously, ultimately, talking about Jesus Christ being the gift that God has given us. But through that, has given us a ton of other gifts. Joy, redemption, amazing stuff. And so we're going to be walking through that in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 this Christmas season, and we'd love for all of you to be a part of it. You'll get information about our special Christmas Eve service. Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year, and we're not going to be meeting at 9 a.m. and 10.30, so let that be the first time you've heard that, and we'll tell you the times because I don't want to mess them up right now. At some other later point, you will get an email or something about that, about what those services are. But today what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up our series we've been doing, looking at these one another's of Scripture called Be Connected. We're going to be in James chapter 5 today, and so some of you might want to turn there right now turn your devices on, whatever it is you're going to use to get the scriptures. And I'm going to pray for us that he would just speak to our hearts as we open up James chapter 5 together. So let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for every person uh, that's here today. It's no mistake that you brought us together in this room. Thank you for those that are watching online. Thank you for your desire to work in our hearts. And with the amount of people that we're talking about, hearing what we're about to open up in James chapter 5, you've got a different plan for all of us. The same point of living on mission for you, connecting people to Jesus Christ for you, to live for your glory, but God, you're doing it. Some of us through suffering, some of us through victory, some of us were rejoicing in our hearts and cheering, some of us were crying out to you because we need help and we need rest, we've got burdens. God, will you speak? Will you do through your word all the things you promise you do in your word, correct, rebuke, encourage, exhort? God, will you do what only you can do this morning? Will you change our lives? Help us to sense your presence here today. We know you're present. We know you work. We know you're moving. Will you help us to to meet you as we open up the scriptures together? It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. James chapter 5 is where we're going to be today, wrapping up this series called Be Connected. And in this series, we've been talking about getting past the point where most of us live in relationships. We live in a place where sociologists and some theologians oftentimes call crowded loneliness, where there's people all around. You can have literally thousands of friends on Facebook, Instagram, and feel like nobody really knows you. We can be in a room like this, hundreds of people in a room, and feel like nobody gets you. Nobody knows what's going on in your life. We've talked about it in this series as the illusion of intimacy, by just having people in your life that you somehow think you have intimacy with those people. And we see in the Bible, at the very beginning, God said to to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. That wasn't just about marriage. We were created to live in community with one another, to glorify God who exists in Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in perfect community with one another throughout all of eternity. And then what does Jesus pray in John chapter 17? 
God, that they would be one as we are one, and by being one together with each other, the world would know that God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ. How does that work? Because he sees how we love each other. The world sees how we love each other. And so we've been doing this series where we've looked at some of these commandments that are in the New Testament. There's 59 of them in the New Testament. We've looked at five. After today will be six commandments, although seven, because we're getting a two for one today, by the way. James chapter 5, verse 16 has two one another's and one verse. I thought, that's a great pow, way to end this series. We're obviously not covering all of them. You'll have to dive into more of them. But what we said through this series is this. You can be a Christian. You can be a Christian and be isolated from a church. You can be a Christian, be in a church, and be isolated from other people. You cannot be an obedient Christian and be isolated from a church. You cannot be an obedient Christian and be at church and not be connected in the lives of the other people that are part of that church. And so we've looked at these one another commandments, and what we see is surface reading, it sounds like it just takes two or three people. But when you dig into these passages, it requires an intimacy that causes us to break the illusion of intimacy we oftentimes live in. And so just to give you a summary of what we've looked at, we started in John chapter 13, because that really lays the foundation for all the other one another's. John chapter 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. And you go, what's the new commandment? And he says, love one another. And you're like, that's in Leviticus. What are you talking about? That's not a new commandment. But here's what makes it new. Just as I have loved you. It's Jesus speaking. That we wouldn't just, hey, I love you, brother. I love you too, sister. I love you. It would be good to get a nice see you once a week. No, that we lay our lives down and sacrifice for one another like Jesus did for us. Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ironically, in God's timing, that happened the same week of the Vegas shooting. There's been other shootings since then. That's a sad commentary on our society. But I said to you, hey, we're living in this world of hate. So who's going to show the Who's going to be the light? That's us. We'd be so different in the way we love not just them out there, Jesus, the way you love one another. Then they'll know you're my disciples. And that laid the foundation. Then we looked at some other ones. Forgive one another. Don't speak evil against one another. We, we talked about, remember, encourage one another. Blitz all day! Now you're looking. Some of you weren't here that week, and you're going, this guy's losing it. He just snapped. The rest of you, you know what I'm talking about. If you were here that week, we're talking about instilling courage in one another, giving each other courage to stand firm in the faith, resist the devil, flee, flee, he will flee from you. And just encouraging one another in the word to continue to live out this relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Because the one another is for believers. And the last time that we were in this series, we took a break last week for Orphan Sunday, had a, a great Sunday together, talking about Orphan Sunday and Orphan Care and adoption. But last time we were together and we talked about the one another's, we were talking about bearing each other's burdens, and I asked you the simple question, what's the greatest burden in your life? And some of you have made that known now to our pastors, some of our elders in your small groups, and we're growing and bearing each other's burdens. Today what we're going to talk about is praying for one another. But it's not just a vague, casual praying for one another. We're going to talk about what it looks like to pray for one another the way the Bible talks about praying for one another. That's James chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, James chapter 5. This book's written, James, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Talk about some pressure there. Some of you are younger siblings. Do you ever have somebody say, you should be more like your older? It's true for James. You should be more like Jesus, James. So should the rest of us. But you, you should too, James. One of the ironic things about James is he was not a believer. He believed Jesus existed, but he was not a follower of Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who came to take away the sins of the world. And so read it on your own, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After Jesus appeared to him post-resurrection, then James became a believer, became a leader in the church. This book that he's writing here, it's one of the earliest books written in the New Testament, probably 10 to 15 years after Jesus re was resurrected. These believers are real close to the time of Jesus. And they've got a lot of stuff going on in the church, some internal, some external. Internally, we can tell just by reading the book, there's gossip that's happening. Internally, we've got affluent believers that are looking down on the poorer believers that are actually taking advantage of some of the poorer believers. 
We've got self-righteousness that's happening by many of the folks. This is just inside the church, still real close to the time of Jesus. It wasn't like it took 2,000 years for these things to happen. And then you've got problems outside the church. Outside the church, there's persecution that's coming. And so this is the book where James says, it's got that crazy verse in James chapter 1, verse 2. You got any trials in your life? Rejoice. Are you nuts, James? Somebody snapped. It wasn't the guy who said blitz all day. It's James. What are you talking about? Rejoice in trials. That's craziness. He's also the one that says, if you say you believe something, that's great. The demons believe in God, and they shudder. They don't have faith. But faith requires action. You do something with your faith. So you got this guy. He's a bold leader. He's not some passive guy. Not some just spiritual person who spends all of his time praying. He's leading the church. In fact, this guy gets martyred. We believe the way that happened was he was led up to the high wall of the temple, thrown off the high wall, and then stoned. So he didn't even die from that. Then stoned to death. Before that, though, he had a reputation, and his nickname was Camel Knees because he was known as a man of prayer. And he writes to us about prayer in James chapter 5. Look at it with me. James chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 13 through 18. We're really going to focus in on verse 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Here in this passage of Scripture, there's no doubt what it's about. It's about prayer. If you look at it, there's six verses, verses 13 through 18, and six out of six verses talk about prayer. You can go back and look at it yourself if you want to. Have you ever heard you know, those commercials like, nine out of ten dentists recommend I want to know who's that other dentist. Is he just, you know, some people are just contrarians. It doesn't matter what you say. They're going to disagree with you. And you can hear that guy and be like, all right, disregard that guy. But maybe he's got insight none of the other dentists had. I want to know why he doesn't think, did you not pay him enough to endorse your product? Like, what's going on here? But here in this passage of Scripture, there's nothing that's, it's all about prayer. Six out of six verses talking about prayer. Now, let me tell you something before we dive too far into this passage of Scripture just to be transparent with you this morning. When I first became a Christian, I didn't think that big about prayer. I didn't think it was that great. I thought it was kind of a weak thing. You do my, The way that God's made me, by default, I'm a task-oriented person. So I, I, I lean towards activity. And so I kind of had the mentality when people talk about prayer of like, there's those of us that can do, and the rest of y'all can pray for the rest of us that are doing. And as I've grown, and Lord willing, I was 18 years old then, I matured, hopefully, I've realized that one of the most important activities you can do is pray. And you see in this passage of Scripture, it says that prayer is, this is James who says, without faith without works is dead. Here's what you do. Pray. It's powerful. It's powerful and effective. Some of you remember the old translation, availeth much. And so as we talk about prayer today, what we're going to see is if you just do a casual reading of this passage of Scripture, it can lead you to some casual prayer. But if we dive into this passage of Scripture, you can no longer just have casual prayer. And there's two words I want you to get. You want to get the outline today? It's just two points. Here's the two words that are the most important words I'm going to say in the points. Intense and intimacy. Intense and intimacy. And the first thing that we see, if we're going to pray the way that the Bible's talking about praying here, is that we must have intense community with one another. We must have intense 
community with one another. Well, why is this guy talking about, what's his problem? Why is he so intense? Well, look at the passage. It's intense. Look at verse 13. James has this pastoral moment. Anybody suffering? Talking about real stuff here. He's just given a context of suffering. The whole book is a context of suffering. They're being persecuted. There's junk going on inside the church. Does anybody, anybody suffer? Let's talk about the real stuff, is what James is saying. Implied is, if you're going to pray for each other, you need to know the needs that are going on in each other's lives. Anyone got great stuff going on? Rejoice. So it doesn't have to be all bad. It doesn't have to be all heavy, but let's know what's going on in the lives of each other. Do you even know what's happening to the people in your small group? Not just saying hundreds of people in this room. In your small group. Those of you who are in a small group. Are there marriages in your small group that are about to end and you don't even know? And you're sitting in a circle with each other every week. Are, are there people there that they, they, they got sin that they're struggling with and they won't share it with you because they don't know what you're going to do? And you're sitting in a circle together every week. Do you even know? See, there's an intensity here, but you want to see more intensity? Jump down to verse 17. This example that's given, Elijah. This is Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently. What does fervent prayer look like? You think about what some of our prayers are. God bless them. Be with. What does that even mean? Be with, God's omnipresent. What are you talking about? Be with. What do you mean by be with? God, if you, maybe you could perhaps maybe think about, if it's your will, because we're Baptists, if it's your will, answer this request that I might have. But if it's not your will, it's totally fine. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Like, what is fervent prayer? Fervent, fervent prayer is this. If some of you have older kids, and they're old enough to make their own decisions, and they're about to make decisions that are going to ruin their life, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's when you pray fervently. It's when you're helpless. God, I, God, I need you. I need you to do something. Intervene. Have them to walk with you. We told them the truth. We want you to be with you. That's fervent prayer. Not God bless these children that are so wonderful and always obey. Well, that's, that's a casual prayer. It's like, have you ever heard this prayer? God, pray, will you pray for my traveling mercies? I'm going to be going to, you know, pick some spot. I'm going to Philadelphia this week, you know, pray for the traveling. That's what happens when you're sitting in a small group, in air conditioning, by the way, and the leader said, hey, do you have any prayer requests? And nobody's saying anything. And you're like, well, I'm traveling. Traveling mercies. That's not fervent prayer, by the way. Fervent prayer is when you go to Philadelphia and you hit a patch of black ice and you're driving in your car. And you don't go like this. Whoa! God, give me traveling mercies. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how you pray in that moment. Like, save me! Save me is fervent prayer, okay? I'm going to die! Elijah's praying fervent prayer. This is intense. You want real intensity? Go to verse 16. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Oh, now we're getting real. Therefore, what does the therefore connect to? It's always a context. What's it going back to? Verse 13. People are suffering here in this place. Go up a little bit. Those of you who brought an old-fashioned copy of the Bible with you, you can look up at verse 10. He's given some examples of suffering. The prophets... You know, the prophets suffered, it wasn't because of their sin, it was because of their faithfulness. They suffered, people were telling them not to say what they were saying because they were speaking truth. We don't want that. We want to live on the surface, and you're pushing us deeper than the surface. Cut it out. Some of them got arrested. Some of them got killed. John the Baptist got his head chopped off for calling out a leader about his immoral marriage. So he said, hey, cut that out. And then he goes to another category. Let me ask the question James asked in verse 13 to y'all. Is anyone here suffering? Anyone here heavy burdened? Anyone here going through difficult times? Go back up to verse 10 and 11. There's a guy in there that he's got his own category of suffering, Job. That's the example he just used. Remember read Job? Here's a guy, he lost all of his businesses, and he had more than one. Read Job chapter 1. He's got all kinds of businesses that are happening there. Lost them all in one day. Financial stress. Some of you know financial pressure. That's your suffering. He knew physical suffering. Job had boils from his head to his toes. Anybody in pain? Job, he's got his own category. He's got a support system around him. His wife said, curse God and die. 
His kids all died in one day. Not one kid. Read Job chapter 1. All of his children in one day. That's the context of what he's just been talking about. And also, James chapter 1, verse 2, I told you. He says that crazy verse. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Are you crazy, James? What are you talking about? Who rejoices in trials? It's because in the trials is where we meet Jesus, the man of suffering, the man of sorrows. So how can he say this? Because it's like he knows stuff that we don't get, but the context is he's going, hey, there's suffering in this life. And then you go to verse 14. Is anyone sick? Sickness, suffering. That's what the therefore, the therefore goes back to, hey, there's pride in this church, therefore. Hey, there's sickness in this church, therefore. Hey, there's suffering in this church, therefore. The internal issues, the external issues, the sin that's happening, the suffering, the sickness. What James is pushing us to here is an intense community. Beyond this, like we talk about, you know, I'll preach a message. I've done it myself. Preach a message on Acts chapter 2. And we need to have this fellowship with one another. Acts chapter 2 talks about they had prayer and Bible study and they're meeting together regularly. And sometimes we get this mythical idea that what's going to happen in our small groups is we're all going to gather together. We're going to have Acts 2 like Bible study and our kids are going to be there and they're going to be well behaved and they're just going to kind of get the afterglow of our wonderful biblical insights we're sharing with one another. And James is going, no, no, no. That's great. You should study the Bible together. That's that's true. but there's sin, and there's sickness, and there's suffering. Therefore, verse 16, he says, confess your sins. Well, read it with me. Therefore, confess your sins. Wait, wait, wait. This is a level of intensity most of us don't want to even think about. To one another. This is one thing to confess our sins to God. You can't even be a Christian and not confess your sins to God. See, he says in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful. He is just based on his character, and he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because we confess our sins, though they were as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. There's none righteous, no, not one. So we have to come before him and confess our sins. But why is it scarier to confess our sins to a person than it is to God? Because God can throw us into hell. God's got power and authority, but God's given us a promise If we confess our sins to him, he will forgive us. We don't have that promise with people. So confessing our sins to other humans with skin on, why why is James telling us to do that? It's not because those people forgive us. Only God can forgive us. He's pushing us to a level of intense community here. And some of it has to do with because of the sinfulness that's in our hearts that's going on in this church that's the same as every person ever since this time. He's pushing us to have an intense community. If we're going to pray for one another, which is the command, they're connected with one another, confess your sins and pray for one another. If we're going to be able to do the second half of the command, we've got to get the first half, which requires intense community. Now, before I tell you why it is he's saying this and why we should do this, let me just pause and say to you some reasons why we don't. I had a professor in seminary, Howard Hendricks. He said, if you, all you do is teach people the Bible, you've only done half your job. You have to not just study the Bible in order to preach. You've got to be able to study the audience. And so I'm going to come to you right now as a missionary to Raleigh. We moved here to start this church. I want to reach this community. I want to give you some observations about our community and just take some things that are in darkness and bring them into the light. You can disagree with me about some of the insights. These aren't from the Bible. This is just my insights of living here for 11 years and planting this church and trying to get to know this area. I'm going to tell you one of the main reasons why we don't do this. The first one is this. I'm going to give you some stats first. Within about a five-mile radius of this school, church, five-mile radius, about 150,000 people. Exact number is about 145,000 people, but just to say 150,000 people. In Wake County, it's about 900,000 people. That's just Wake County. So we're not talking about Durham, not talking about Chatham County, just Wake County. 
In the Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill area, they estimate about 2 million people. And what I'm about to say to you is going to cause dissonance to that, and some of you may disagree. Here's, here's what I'm saying. We live in a small town. And here's what I mean by that. The likelihood that you and I meet for the first time in the cafeteria after the service today, and we talk, and you know somebody that I know that's in this town, very high. I was telling the first service, there were, when we came here to start this church, before we even started the church, I was meeting with two different guys. One was a financial planner, one was an attorney, and we were just doing you know, breakfast together, studying the Bible together, talking about what it is to be a man, talking about the Bible, accountability. And I met another guy in town, and he's like, oh, yeah, I told him I came here to plant a church. He goes like, I know a guy who goes to your church. It was one of those two guys. They weren't famous. They weren't like doing TV commercials. I was like, oh, that's weird. We don't even have a church, and there's only three of us, and you know somebody. I moved here from Dallas, Texas. We were in Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas is a huge metropolitan area. If I met somebody, the likelihood they would know my financial planner or my attorney, the likelihood that you and I have like the same dentist or doctor or something, just the way this community is kind of structured, put together, and the history of this community, we live in a small town. If you've grown up in a small town, you know you can't tell anybody anything because then everybody knows everything. And so if you meet somebody in this community and they've got your same dermatologist, dentist, whatever it is, real estate agent, whatever it is, you're asking yourself the question subconsciously, if I'm vulnerable with you, what are you going to do with it? Because you know, here's the damage you can do. Here's the people that you know. It fights against what James is pushing us to in this passage of Scripture. I want to remind you something about this passage. It is a command, not a suggestion. If you love Jesus, you obey his commands. Here's a command. It doesn't matter what community you live in. Doesn't matter if you're in Raleigh, doesn't matter if you're in South Dakota, doesn't matter where you live. So some of you are watching online, you live in a different place. That part might not have applied to you. This is still a command for us, and that's one of the obstacles here in our community. Just want to bring it into the light. It's one of the reasons why we don't do it. Here's another reason why. Because it requires vulnerability. And nobody likes to be vulnerable. When you make yourself vulnerable, you're saying, Here, here I am, you can hurt me. I don't have control anymore. This past weekend, uh, my wife ran a marathon up in Richmond, Virginia, and I went up there to cheer her on, and I wanted to be at certain spots to keep up with her, and so I took my bike with me. <laughs> That's how I keep up with her. I'm going to be on the bike. And I was going to meet her at different spots during this race, 26.2-mile race, and so I'm going to be at these different spots. I was going to be at mile 12, I was going to be at mile 19, different places I wanted to be, and I was able to hit those spots, and several stories came about from that, so I may allude back to this again in the future, uh, but stopping and asking police officers for shortcuts and how to get to spots, and it all worked out, but I wasn't sure how the end was going to go, because I wanted to meet her at the 25th mile, and I wanted to also be at the finish line, which was 1.2 miles away, and they don't just let you ride down the course, by the way, because I can beat her on a bike when she's running. So I had to like go other way, go around stuff. And so at the 25th mile, I'm there. I got my sign, like, you can, Shan. And I'm cheering her on. I'm pumped up, right? She's got it. She's doing great. And then as soon as she goes by, I hop on the bike. I put my backpack on. I hop on. I'm riding the bike. The bike that I'm riding has got brakes down towards the front. And I'm going through this. And I get to this hill. The last half mile of the race is all downhill. So I'm going down this hill, but not on the course. I'm riding on grass. I'm like dodging strollers. I'm feeling pretty cool. I came to this retaining wall at one point, hopped off the bike, jumped, put it on my shoulder, jumped down, hopped back on the bike. I was like, that was like Jason Bourne. I'm like, awesome. I'm like pumped. I'm thinking, y'all need to stop watching this race and look at what I'm doing over here. I'm coming down through the, the there's like these metal barricades to go to the finish line. And now I'm in a spot where I'm just letting the gravity's kind of doing. I'm not pedaling. I'm just standing on a pedal, and I'm cruising down this place. I'm yelling, on your left, on your right, passing you, because all these people are walking. I'm just like zooming by all these people. And then I realized I'm going too fast, so I tapped the brakes, but I accidentally hit the front brake. Back tires up, inverted by my head, and I'm over the handlebars running like this, 
coming towards this barricade, and this older woman holds her arms out, and I'm thinking as she's doing it, like, yeah, you're going to, and I hit the, smash into this metal barricade. I cut my hand up, my hand's bleeding, and after, like, kind of, like, disheveled moment, I got the bike stuck between my legs, the lady goes, are you okay? Honest answer at that moment was, like, I think I just broke my pride, okay? So that's what happened in there. I'm stuck on this metal gate. I'm looking over at the time, like, has she finished, you know, trying to figure this out, and I've got this bike between my legs. It was a vulnerable position. A physical illustration of the spiritual reality of this passage. We don't like to be vulnerable because then we're out of control. We don't like to be vulnerable because then we're helpless. We don't like to be vulnerable because someone else could hurt us. And what does it say as a church? Like that lady, you'd be their help. Confess your sins, confess your sins. Be someone that they can confess sins to. So you don't have to confess your sins to everyone. You need to be able to confess your sins to someone. Who are the someones in your life? See, vulnerability is scary, and it's asking for voluntary vulnerability in this passage. Who does that? No one does that. No one in this world. Not talking about Raleigh-Durham. I'm talking about this whole world. Why would you do this? Because you're not of this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. It's called you want to live differently than the rest of this place. You want to break through the illusion of intimacy. You want to have real relationships and intense community. Start following what Jesus says. Start following what the Bible says. Start seeing what is commanded of us here. If you love Jesus, you keep his commandments. Confess your sins to one another. People with skin on. Let me tell you something. If we would do this, if we would do this, this is the stuff that revival is made of. If we're content with just like continuing as things are going, status quo, doing church, fine. Read this passage, go eat lunch, no big deal. But if we do this, this is like how the Methodist movement started, just so you know. And I know we're Baptists, so like, is it okay to talk? Yeah, it's okay. Jesus is still there. <laughs> they started confessing their sins to one another. Prayer is powerful. This is, you want revival to break out? Then taking this stuff seriously. Pray for, why would we do this? Why would we do this? Well, let me tell you the first reason, the primary reason why is this. It puts the gospel on display. When you, when you start confessing your sins to one another, what you're saying is, it's not, we don't all have it together. We all need grace. And what you're doing, when you let your weaknesses be seen, guess what? Then Jesus is made known. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus is then seen. I need a Savior. His name is Jesus. You need a Savior. His name is Jesus. You give somebody else an opportunity to be like Jesus in their response to you. See, the problem is we just don't know what they're going to do. And so we have to be vulnerable. So instead, what many of us will choose to do is like a family picture. We pose as if everything's perfect. Just stand there, pinch one kid, tell them to look forward. <laughs> Smile! <laughs> Start sm- stop looking! And that's what we do our Christian lives. But if we confess our sins to one another, it forces us, it forces us to put the gospel on display. That we all, it's not just a vague, by the way, hey, we've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. The word confess here means to agree with. Who are you agreeing with? You're agreeing with God. You're saying what he says about your sin. You're saying that's what I've done is what nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. What I've done, that's what breaks my relationship with him in fellowship now. What I've done, that's why as a holy God, he can't have me in his presence. That puts the gospel on display saying that we needed then the righteousness of Christ. We needed the forgiveness of him. Why else? Why else? Well, it also... It also keeps us humble. And James, if you just flip over one page and look at James chapter 4, it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you want to fight against God or do you, do you want the favor of God in your life? Confessing sins to one another keeps us humble. But not only does it keep us humble, it brings things that are in darkness into the light. Sin naturally wants to hide. Think about in Genesis chapter 3. What happened after they sin? After Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They run and they hide. 
why sin naturally likes darkness. Sin hides. Let me read you a couple quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer says this, He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. He also says this, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. So God gets you, or Satan gets you alone, away from other people speaking biblical truth into your life, intense community. Then you start believing lies. You start believing your sin's even worse than it is. You start thinking that you're trapped, that no one else knows, that no one else would understand. Sin wants to hide, and what this, this commandment calls us to bring it into the light. Let's bring sin out into the light. Let's see, you know, nobody melts. We've all got sin. So let's, let's be honest about it. With one another, it requires an intense community. But not only that, an intimate relationship with God. That's our second point. It requires an intimate relationship with God. No doubt this passage is about prayer. Six out of six verses mention prayer. This verse right here, the command we're looking at, is ultimately that we would pray for one another. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then it talks about the power of prayer. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. We see that all through the Bible. Remember the disciples are trying to cast out a demon, they're unable. And then Jesus comes and he doesn't go, it's because I'm Jesus. He says, this kind only comes out by prayer. There's power in prayer. Think about in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, what ends up happening is that Peter is preaching the name of Jesus, and then the most powerful men in the world at that time, from a human perspective, tell him, you stop preaching that name. And he says, we got to obey. You decide. Is it right to obey you or God? And they leave. But they're human. You see Peter sin later, fall, uh, confronts him about that. He, know he's gonna, he could fail. He knows he can fail. So he goes to his community, and he says to them in this house, he says, will you pray for me? And they start praying for boldness. And Acts chapter 4, verse 31 says, they prayed, and the place where they were praying was shaken. So the kind of prayer that moves heaven shakes earth. Can you imagine that? That's powerful prayer. And you see prayer throughout the Bible. Prayer closes the mouth of lions. So it makes the sun stand still. Casts out demons. There's power in prayer. But, but for who? He says here, prayer of a righteous person. So who's the righteous person? Some of you might be thinking, well, it's not me. Well, here's the reality from one respect is that every believer is righteous because at the point when you bowed your knee before Jesus Christ and you asked Jesus to be your Savior, you acknowledged your sin, you turned from your sin, you realized that you needed his righteousness, God gave you his righteousness. Theologians call it imputed righteousness. He put his righteousness on you because you, you came before Jesus. Though your sins were as scarlet, how do they become white as snow? Because what he did is he washed you with the blood of Christ. Now when God looks at you, what he sees is Jesus Christ. There are none righteous, no, not one. But you've been redeemed if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. So now he sees you as righteous. The old is gone, new has come. Amen? And so maybe it's all believers, but... But no, he's talking here about prayer, and, and we look through the Bible as a whole, and we know that our practical sin, not just the positionally before God, but when we sin, because even after you become righteous from receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you still sin. I hope that's not a newsflash to any of you. <laughs> Otherwise, you're really self-righteous. And that breaks fellowship with God. That hinders our prayers. Husbands, read First Peter. Psalm chapter 66, verse 18 says this, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, that's God's word, even his prayer is an abomination. Isaiah 59, verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear you. So our sins, our practical sins, break our fellowship with God, and he stops listening to us. James chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles, just look over. James chapter 4, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, 
You ask with wrong motives. You ask so that you can spend whatever it is that you get from God on yourself. You're so sinful, you actually sin in your prayers. You're actually, when you're calling out to God and you're actually asking for something, it's so that you can use it for your selfish gain. He's going, God's not going to answer that prayer. You're sinning in your praying to him. So what does it mean to be righteous? Well, it doesn't mean moral perfection. None of us can do that. What's the example that he gives? Go to the passage, verse 17. Elijah. Okay, so you'd expect the next thing. The first word is Elijah. You'd expect the next thing to go, and you just need to be like Elijah. But look what the passage says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The point is not you need to be like Elijah. The point is Elijah was like you. Because you can look at him and be like, oh, he's this amazing prophet. He's like an all-star. That, we're, just supposed to, we're just shoot for that example. We know we'll never get there, but maybe we can try for it. That's not the point. The point is he was just like you. In fact, read on your own in your own study, 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, 19. What you'll see is he prays some incredible prayers. God does some amazing stuff, fire from heaven. He prays for a kid to be raised from the dead. You're like, well, that's what happens in the Bible. It had never happened in the Bible up to that point. There's some faith, and the kid's raised from the dead. He prays that it wouldn't rain. That's what it says in this passage, and it doesn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prays it would rain, and it rains. Amazing stuff. You know what else you see? He feared man, a woman specifically, he was weak, he was sinful, he got depressed, and I mean for real depressed. I don't mean like, oh, I'm kind of sad, having a rough day, kind of in a funk. No, he wanted to die. He had a real depression. He was a sinner, just like you and just like me. So what was it about? Why is this the example here then? He's obviously not righteous, like morally perfect. What are we talking about here? James is probably alluding to another theme that he has in his book, double-mindedness. In James chapter 1, it says, if you pray double-minded, you shouldn't expect to receive anything. Well, in this very passage that he's alluding to here, in 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and he prayed that it would rain, and it would rain, he gets in this battle with these prophets of Baal. You know what he says to them? He says that all these prophets, there's 850 of them, and all the people that are gathered around to watch this, he says, choose who you're going to serve. Stop limping between two options. If Baal is God, serve Baal. If you love this world, go after this world. But if Jesus is Lord, let him be Lord. Submit your life. Be all in with him. You're still going to sin. None of us are perfect. But you're with him. The problem is for some of us, we're wavering. We're wavering between. And so what he's calling us to, an intimate relationship with God ultimately means dependence upon God. It's not about you being morally perfect. It's about you being all in with him. So your prayers change from what he talks about in James chapter 4 then to the way that Elijah prayed. Let me read you 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 37. In the midst of this battle, he's calling down fire from heaven. He says this, answer me, O Lord. This is a fervent prayer, by the way. This isn't traveling mercies. I want fire from heaven, and there's a big audience. Answer me, why? That this people may know that I'm an awesome prophet. That's not what he says. That's what some of us would say. I want them to know that your hand is on me. It's all about you. No, it's about God's glory. That they may know you. He's praying actually for these people. That they may know you, O Lord, that you are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And you know what happens after the fire comes from heaven? They all go, the Lord is God and they slaughter the prophets of Baal. It's intense. It's not just me. It's in the Bible. His intimacy then came from his connection with the Lord because he was all in. Are you all in? And then God speaks to him. See, when he prays that it wouldn't rain, that's not just like some wish that Elijah makes up, by the way. It's talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 22 and 23. He's actually praying the scripture back to God, and he's got a sensitivity to what's going on, so much so that he knows, now it's time, God, now it's time. God's spoken to him in this. 
And you go into this passage, and what does it say? It says to the elders when they're to pray over sick people. What does it say in verse 14? Go to verse 14. It says, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That when we pray, we're supposed to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, it says in this passage here, and the, the... Hey, what's up? Demons in the mic. They're shuddering. Bad pastor joke, sorry. And the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. It sounds almost like a guarantee that if you pray with faith, then the sick person will be made well. But what about Paul when he prays, God, take away the storm from my flesh, and three times, and then God says no. You see, the, the, the idea here is this. When you pray in someone's name, you're praying what you believe they would pray in that situation. That means you need to be close to Jesus to be able to pray in Jesus' name. It's not just a tagline you put on the end of a prayer. And in Jesus' name I pray. No, it's, I believe if, I, if Jesus were in my exact situation in this moment, this is what he would pray. That's what it is to pray in Jesus' name. That requires an intimacy with Jesus. And sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we don't have Deuteronomy. And so it's like in the situation where he's praying for that child to be raised from it, he didn't have a verse for that. He didn't have a verse for the fire from heaven. So when he's praying those things, you know what, he's, what the reality is? If God decides to do something different, that's okay too. But you don't have to pray this tepid prayer, and if you want to, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. God, God's sovereign. He doesn't need you to be defending him. It's not a guarantee that everyone will be healed because here's the reality. Some of the people that are healed, Lazarus is raised from the dead. Let me tell you something. Lazarus is still not here walking this earth. He's dead. He died again. People that they couldn't see and they were given their sight, they died too. And some of us, when we pray for healing, what we're, ultimately, what we're praying for ultimately is our own glory, our own easiness, all that stuff. But what God does it for when he answers those prayers, because sometimes he does answer those prayers, he's pointing us to his power, the power of the resurrection, that we're all ultimately going to be resurrected with him, that he resurrected his son, Jesus Christ, that we can trust him. That's, that's the point of the healing. And the people that are able to pray for that are the ones that have this intimacy with him that can actually pray in his name. I told some of you a story before about my dad. Uh, my dad, when I was a senior in college, uh, had an aortic dissection. He was care flighted to a hospital. That means his aorta had a tear in it, and it went there. And my mentor was there, and he started praying. And he prayed that God would heal the tear that was there. He said, God, I know that the, the tests show, I know the doctors are right, but I pray that when the doctors get in there, that tear wouldn't be there. And I've shared with some of you before, I, said, I thought that was a dumb prayer. I was still in that stage of life where I was like, I don't know, prayer's good for some people. To, the rest of us can do stuff kind of idea. And one of the ways that God changed my life was passages like this, and seeing mentors like that have an impact in my life. And so he's praying this prayer. The doctor comes back, says, hey, we got in there. The tear that we saw wasn't there when we got in there. My mentor jumped up and goes, remember I prayed that? And I'm thinking, oh, man, come on. I shared with that with some of you before. What I haven't shared with you is this. When he was praying that, he wasn't planning on praying that. He didn't regularly pray like that. God gave him those words in that moment. That's what it is to pray in the name of Jesus. That you hear Jesus. Jesus is speaking to you, speaking to your heart. He thought about it after he prayed. What was I doing? Praying that prayer. That's what it is to pray in his name. You know what that requires? Intimacy. Do you know how you get intimacy with the Almighty? You've got to have a relationship with him. You've got to be made right with him through Jesus Christ. But you know what else? Time. Time with him. Practicing, not just talking. Listening to him. Him speaking to you. Growing in relationship with him. 